When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From movie set to multiplex, it's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson. If only I could die. If you died, you'd forget me. I want to be remembered. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? I'll just come up sometimes, see me. I'm home every evening. This is Simon Rose. I am now in conversation with James Cameron Wilson to talk about the business of film. And oddly enough, that, that clip is quite appropriate. A clip there from Brief Encounter. I had not realised until I watched a documentary on Sky um, last night about Billy Wilder that he got the idea about the apartment from watching Brief Encounter. Good. So it was really interesting. He wondered what happened to the guy whose place they borrowed, who had to sort of, you know, tidy up after them and everything. And that was the inspiration for the apartment. Never heard that before. So that was quite intriguing. There we are. There are lots of gems around. Yes, there are. So talking of gems, what exciting film is top of the UK box office? Well, I'm James Cameron Wilson, and I do the business of film with Simon Rose. And we're talking about the top 10 UK box office of the previous weekend, which is down minus 8.4% from the Mm. previous outing. Although one should recollect that that figure had jumped up the weekend before. I do recollect. And 81%. I recall that. Before that. I recall that. So the box office is looking good in spite of everything trying to stifle it. And for the first time this year, I actually found it difficult to find a seat in the cinema. Oh, wow. Which I was really surprised by. Not. (laughs) <laughs> not That's what you the, get if you wear your sunglasses when you go inside, James. <laughs> not, not the number one film, which is Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, which made £5.9 million. The third highest opening weekend of the year. Now, you may remember that Sonic the Hedgehog 2 <laughs> established that figure last weekend, but it's now been overtaken by right. The Secrets of Dumbledore. Uh, behind the Batman and Sing 2. Did I see you yawn there? Well, I found the first Fantastic Beast film so incredibly dull, you could not pay me to go to another one. Mm, well, I thought this one... Anyway. <laughs> you... <laughs> I'll find out in due course. You will indeed. The eponymous villain of the last film, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, has undergone a major transformation. His white hair hair has been dyed dark, and instead of sticking up on end, it is now combed across the forehead, mm. and the moustache is completely gone. There has been no attempt to replicate the antagonist of the last film, played by Johnny Depp, into the one now por- portrayed by Mads Mikkelsen in The Secrets of Dumbledore. So Johnny Depp has well and truly been eradicated. Now, I am a huge fan of Mads Mikkelsen, particularly in the Danish films Open Mm. Hearts, A Royal Affair, The Hunt, and Another Round. They're all brilliant. 
He is perhaps best known, known for playing Le Chiffre in Casino Royale, the 21st James Bond film. And more or less, he was recycles that same performance for his portrayal of the cold and menacing and supremely self-possessed Gellert Grindelwald. Obviously, Johnny Depp has fallen the way of Kevin Spacey and Army Hammer. And regardless of one's thoughts concerning cancel culture, he was and is a very good actor, just as Mozart may have been unforgivably crass as a human being, ditto Beethoven. They were both very good composers. Mm. As for Depp, I think he has grown as an actor and was virtually the best thing about the crimes of Grindelwald, preceding the brilliant turn he delivered in the sadly little scene Waiting for the Barbarians, starring Mark Rylance. Be that as it may, I sort of missed him in Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, if only because I could actually comprehend what his character was saying, Eddie Redmayne. Here, Eddie Redmayne returns as Newt Scamander, and again, I wonder what on earth he is going on about. The plot is complicated enough without so much of the exposition swallowed in Eddie Redmayne's mouth. He is to the United Kingdom what Casey Affleck and Robert Downey Jr. are to the United States, and the film is convoluted. I needed him. Having said that, I did prefer this outing, the third in the Fantastic Beasts franchise, of the first three. There are going to be five, although the wizarding world just seems to get darker and darker by the film. This one is not only terrifying in part, but excessively slow and sombre and grim. I don't mind slow, but it seems an odd fit for a J.K. Rowling fantasy who co-wrote the screenplay Mm. based on her own idea. I really do miss that childlike awe of all things enchanted, initially represented by Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in 2001, 21 years ago. Can you believe it, Simon? Or Harry Potter and Sorcerer's Stone. Yes, because they don't know in America what philosophers are. Well, (laughs) uh, I I just miss Harry Potter and his friends and all those eccentric professors and wizards of Hogwarts. Here, Eddie Redmayne lays on the eccentricity with a trowel, and at times I thought he might have caught something rather nasty. But there is... An amusing scene in which to escape the clutches of an army like an army of crab like creatures, he adopts their singular walk. I I would have liked more of this. Here, the American comedian Dan Fogler isn't given much to play with as the muggle baker Jacob Kowalski. I'm just a schmoll, he says. And I kind of forgot where his character sat in the rest of the action. However, his bakery on a street in Queens does allow for some spectacular CGI creations of 1930s New York, which I could have done more of. Actually, Stuart Craig and Neil Lamont's production design is staggering, as are the Fantastic Beasts themselves. In particular, a fawn-like creature known as a chillin, which can perceive a human's true soul and pureness of heart. And so it's captured by Grindelwald's acolytes so that he can adapt it for his own nefarious Mm. ends. And the little thing's mother is killed, recalling a similarly traumatic scene in Disney's Bambi. 
In fact, it's hard to shake off the feeling of Disney here, particularly as Scamander's magic suitcase is a direct rip-off of Mary Poppins' Holdall, which seemed able to contain no end of useful stuff, and in this case, Fantastic Beasts. But here, I just felt the magic was missing. And with a villain like Gellert Grindelwald, who is bent on destroying millions in order to secure his power, I couldn't help but note the contemporary resonance resonance like another dictator currently much in the news too many people give him the benefit of the doubt here and so having been a fugitive from justice Grindelwald is now put up as a candidate to become leader of the magical universe partly with the help of the chillen consequently of course he must be stopped not that I had any sense of real fear or dread in fact the film doesn't really elicit any emotions whatsoever in me. I didn't laugh. I didn't cry. Um, you will be bored, Simon. Well, I was it bored, is... fairly bored in the first one. So, yeah, don't worry. You haven't convinced me to go. This is the James. slowest Wizarding uh... World film yet. <laughs> and it just plods from one set piece to the other. It's odd, because as you say, it's exactly the opposite of what it should be. I know. Presumably but it's, it's long as well, I imagine. It's two hours and a quarter. Oh. It looks amazing. It feels at least two and a half hours. There are some good performances, uh, but not Eddie Redmayne. I don't know what he's doing. And, of course, he just won a BAFTA this week for Cabaret, bless him. So that was, which I understand is absolutely wonderful. Of course, I missed my chance. The sort of post-lockdown uh, period was when they were almost giving away tickets to Cabaret, but I didn't realise at the time. Can't get them for love nor money now, but... James, that's number one. So tell them we take a little bit more before we take a break. So what's number yeah, two? Yeah, okay. At number two, we've got Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which was at number one, down 42%, with a total of £10.6 million, pounds, mm. which I thought was execrable. Uh, I just thought it was a complete mess. Number three, we have The Bad Guys, which is holding very well. Although it's dropped 51%, it's still at number three with a total of 4.9 million. Two things struck me about the bad guys, because, of course, I couldn't get to see it last week because mm. my multiplex had flooded. So oh, I had yes, to go all the way back same. and use yes. another two hours of petrol to get there. But I was struck by two things. One, that the cinema was packed and I almost didn't get a seat. And two, beneath all the hijinks on screen and the snappy one-liners, there were some surprisingly profound observations in what is a U-certificate computer-generated cartoon. These, I think, would have been lost on the younger demographic, but registered with me, such mm. as when the nominal heroine of the story, a fox called Diane Foxington, an obvious reference to the primatologist and conservationist Diane Fossey, uh, she is the new governor of L.A., and when she says even trash can be recycled into something beautiful. It has many levels. This is a reference both to some of the modern art on display in the city, as well as to the film's protagonist, a criminal wolf called Mr. Wolf, whom Diane hopes to reform. On one level, The Bad Guys, DreamWorks' 42nd feature cartoon is just a funny knockabout action comedy but on a deeper level it deals with the thin line between good and evil and what makes us do bad things early on the film i think the film's various inspirations are obvious as five of the most 
As five of the most feared creatures in the animal kingdom all go about by their nominal nouns. So we have Mr. Wolf, Mr. Snake, Mr. Piranha, Mr. Shark, and Ms. Tarantula. An obvious reference to the bad guys in Rever's Reservoir Dogs. And just like the former, the cartoon starts with a heist. There is a lot of banter between the critters whose motto is, we may be bad, but we're good at it. Mr. Wolf is voiced by Sam Rockwell, and he does a pretty good job of channeling George Clooney in Danny Ocean mode from Ocean's Eleven. In fact, sometimes it, I almost swore it was George Clooney speaking. I did laugh out loud a number of times. The snappy script is the solo credit of Etan Cohen, who previously penned Tropic Thunder 1, Madagascar 2, and Men in Black 3. And the plot zips along nicely. There is going to be another Tropic Thunder, so I can call it Tropic Thunder 1. Uh, the plot zips along nicely with a few unexpected turns. I think older viewers should get a lot of the movie illusions, while the younger lot should just enjoy the slapstick and fart jokes. It is a user to... <laughs> Oh, far joke. So well, you persuaded me, James. Right. <laughs> okay, time for us just to take a quick uh, breather. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Business of Film on Share Radio, where James Cameron Willis is taking us through last weekend's um, top 10 at the box office. We've got down to number three and the bad guys, which sounds uh, as if you really enjoyed it, James. What now? It's quite fun. It's quite fun. Uh, I quite enjoyed the one at number four, which dropped a whopping 77%. This is the new Matt Smith film in which he plays a character not unlike the sort of character I'm going to be talking about in my DVD of the week. So this film is Morbius, which is a new Marvel supervillain, which just was too much like Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But I enjoyed all the science in it, that it was trying to justify why he was, in fact, mm. a vampire. Anyway, it's uh, now got a total of £5.1 million, and it's going out of the cinemas fast. And number five, we have another Batman called The Batman, which was at number four, down 48%, with a total of £39.2 million. It is so far the film of the year, commercially speaking. At number six, we've got Uncharted, which was at number six, down 52% with a total of £23.9 million, which, of course, is Tom Holland, who yeah. is now a box office behemoth. We have a new film at number seven, The Outfit with Mark Rylance, replacing The Phantom of the Open with Mark Rylance, which is now out of the top ten, but Mark Rylance is back. Mm. It's an American gangster movie with a British cast, including Sir Mark, Sir Simon Russell Beale, Nicky Amuka Bird, and Johnny Flynn. 
It's the directorial debut of Graham Moore, who won an Oscar for his screenplay to The Imitation Game. And it's got rather good reviews. Not many critics actually reviewed it, but the ones that did seem to really like it. Yes, I did see one good review, so I'm curious to know what you think. Yes, um, it hasn't come anywhere near me, oh. I'm afraid. Uh, disappointing. I know, it is. Disappointing. So, I mean, last week I'd managed to get to see, because I'd been in Cambridge, I managed to get to see the, the worst person in the world. But We're I, getting I'm to assuming, that. I'm assuming that's difficult to get to see as well. Well, it's still out there. It's at number nine, but we'll talk about Ambulance briefly, which I think is Michael Bay's best film. Take that how you like, which was at number five. It's, it's gone down, dropped three places, down 67%, with a total of 1.5 million, which is rather pathetic for a Michael Bay movie, who, of course, is known for all his blockbusters like Armageddon and Pearl mm. Harbor. But um, I thought, yeah, yeah. Abdul Mateen II gave a real noble human presence as a man who ends up having to drive an ambulance, which is being chased by the FBI and the LAPD while they're performing an operation on a shot policeman in the back. It's kind of speed in an ambulance. And I was totally gripped from beginning to end. And it's also got Jake Gyllenhaal on rather good form. He's always immensely watchable. It, sounds, it seems a little odd that that's sort of declined so quickly you would have thought people would lap it up i know it, it is quite violent it is now the easter holidays uh. jake gyllenhaal is not a certified box office star but the name michael bay probably appeals more to an older demographic mm. and no i'm i'm sorry it, it's actually based on a danish film uh, which not many people know about anyway uh I would like you to tell me a little bit about the film at number nine, which is The Worst Person Thanks. in the World. Which is, I can't remember, Norwegian-Danish, can't remember that. Norwegian, I it's think. Norwegian. Norwegian it's Norwegian film. Norwegian. Um, and it is showing at 97 cinemas around the country. Or it very was enjoyable, weekend. very intelligent about a young woman um, who simply can't decide what she wants to do when it comes to jobs and to... Um, partners um it's been sort of build a scandinavian woody allen i suppose that's about as close as we can we can get it but very intelligent it's lovely to see an art house film that's doing um so well frankly and we were talking last week about how seldom scandinavian films get into the top 10 and you mentioned babette's feast which of course is danish what's well, the only one i could think of but there must be more since then surely well, if, and I said I'd look into it, but I've had such a crazy week. I haven't, and I do <laughs> well, apologise. Well, we'll do it for next week, though. The biggest Norwegian box office film of It may have dropped out of the chart by then. Um, but it is nice just occasionally with all those other blockbusters to see, a, you know, a, an art house movie that is in the top ten and surviving for more than one week. And it got really rave reviews. You're not the only one who's trumpeting its no, virtues. no, no. no. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not raving. I'm just saying it's a really good, intelligent film with a lot of insight into human character and some very good lines. Yeah. So uh, and we still got number 10 to do. And then you've got your, your DVD Blu-ray of the week, haven't we? Yes, I have indeed. At number 10, and there are other things I can always talk about, of course, mm. but at number 10, we've got Sing 2, which was at number 10 last week, down 46%, now with £32.4 million pounds mm. in the bank. So, yes, I would like to talk about my Blu-ray mm. of the week. In 1922, a film opened that was a complete disaster. The American critics called it a fantastically boring film 
and at the behest of Bram Stoker's widow, all the negatives were destroyed. Not long afterwards, the company that made it, Prana Films, went bankrupt. And yet, a hundred years later, the film remains a classic. And thanks to the diligence of various departments in Paris, Berlin, Wiesbaden, Czechoslovakia and Bologna, a complete version has been assembled. And to mark its 100-year anniversary, Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, is being shown around the country in conjunction with a Blu-ray release, packed with features, including a documentary on its maker, F.W. Murnau, and the making of the film itself. When you think that only, now listen to this, when you think that only 20% of all silent movies have survived, it seems akin to a miracle to be able to hold a, a work like Nosferatu in your hands. Murdoch's previous films are all lost. There are segments, but the complete films are lost. But thanks to the critical reception in France of Nosferatu and a print falling into American hands, it was rescued from obscurity. Murnau's subsequent German films, The Last Laugh and Faust, have survived. And then, of course, Murnau went to Hollywood to direct the silent classics Sunrise, The Four Devils, City Girl, which inspired Terence Malick's Days of Heaven, and Taboo. It is ironic that Murnau, before the premiere of Taboo, was killed in a car accident in Los Angeles, when during the First World War, he actually survived a reported eight plane crashes when he served in the German Army's Flying Corps. Eight plane crashes. He survived. And he ended up uh, as a POW in Switzerland. Nosferatu is, of course, an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, with the Count's name changed to Count Orlock, played by Max Schreck. The restored version uses the original score and intertitles, with its scenes... Scenes tinted in different shades, as was the norm mm. back then, with a yellow tint representing exteriors, a blue hue representing nighttime, and so forth. There are two separate commentaries shedding fascinating insights into the making of the film and its history. There is so much to watch on this high-resolution restoration that I only got around to watching the film and half the documentary one evening. I then watched the film again the following evening with the commentaries, the rest of the documentary and the interviews with the historian Kevin Jackson, who is incredibly eloquent, and the film director yes. Abel Ferrara, who isn't. I interviewed with Kevin Jackson years ago, yes. I mean, he was responsible for um, restoring Napoleon, amongst other things, and those Thames yes. Silent series many years ago. Gosh, yep. no television company like Thames would do that these days. I know. I, I did learn a lot. I mean, with this, with this sort of context, it's really interesting to watch the film, first as an entertainment and then again as a historical document, because it was shot on such a low budget. There were very few studio sets. And so Murnau had to shoot on location, both in the Wismar and Lübeck and in the Carpathian Mountains. Of course, the locations are what really give the film its distinctive look. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to believe that the enormous, creepy townhouse that Count Orlock buys, which even then in the film looks like it's about to topple down, yes, yes. is still around today. 
Really? So, yeah. <laughs> Some of the streets and houses in the film, wonderfully Dickensian haunts, were bombed during the Second World War, but many surprisingly still survive. And the documentary neatly cuts back and forth between what was then and what is now. The film still has a curious power, but bearing in mind that it was made over 100 years ago, one must allow and enter into the spirit of a somewhat more demonstrative style of acting. A mix of German romanticism and expressionism, it has proved enormously influential, was remade, of course, by Werner Herzog in 1979, and prompted the Oscar-nominated Shadow of the Va Vampire about the making of the film with John Malkovich as Murdoch yes, and yes. Willem Dafoe as Max Schreck. Yes. Of course, I now can't wait to visit, revisit Shadow of the Vampire, as when I originally saw it, I hadn't seen Nosferatu yet. James, thank you very much but indeed. May I just, may I just say very quickly, uh, the all-new ancient Nosferatu is available on the Eureka Video Store on eurekavideo.co.uk forward slash movie forward slash Nosferatu. James, thank you very much indeed. James Cameron Winston will be back with more of The Business of Film at the same time next week. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. I am big. It's the picture that got small. <laughs>